Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Mark Leonard, who is the co-founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, the first pan-European think tank. His focus is on geopolitics, geoeconomics, China, EU, and institutions. He's also the host of the podcast, Mark Leonard's World in 30 Minutes, and author of the new book, The Age of Unpeace, How Connectivity Causes Conflict. Thank you for joining the podcast, Mark. How are things uh, in the UK in this age of unpeace? Um, well, the weather's been pretty great the last few days, so that's hiding a lot of the um, simmering uh, uncertainty about the COVID world, about Britain's role after Brexit, and also a lot of angst that was unleashed by the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yeah, it's funny. It seems most of the guests that I have that are from Britain always answer that it's, you know, it's, it's gray uh, in Britain. Uh, be before I get to my first question, then I just wanted to remind listeners to subscribe to the email list, uh, Telegram, Twitter, and other platforms. And as I'm doing this full time, your donations are very much appreciated. Uh, Mr. Leonard, so uh, in your book, where I, which I just finished uh, reading and which I enjoyed very much, you say networks or global connectivity have become weapons. Connections that knit the world together are driving it apart. Uh, in the intro to your book, you paint a picture of Uh, for example, British food supply problems as a result of French border closures, Turkey using migration as a weapon against the EU, US regulators banning Chinese companies, uh, Iran seizing tankers in, res in response to sanctions. It all kind of makes sense. It's kind of like a chipper family gathering that can often end in argument. Uh, it goes against the grain of the globalization story we have been hearing for decades. Uh, you say we can't have a globalized planet or one world, that having such an open world is causing problems. Perhaps you can kind of lay out uh, your main thesis and then we can drill down from there. With great pleasure. I am somebody whose life has been enormously enhanced by globalization and by connectivity um, on every plane, you know, my personal life, my family is spread out all over the world because um, my mum's side were German Jews, many of whom were killed in the Holocaust, other people have settled in different places. My father's uh, was British um, and he was uh, uh, sent away from home at the age of eight during the Second World War and his father fought in the First World War. So the fact that we don't have wars uh, and uh, that people are bound together in new ways is, is, has been wonderful. I have a think tank with offices in seven different countries. I travel pre-COVID 150 days a year. Um, I love food and culture from other parts of the world. So in my life, connectivity and these connections has been uh, almost an unalloyed good. However, what we realize with the Brexit referendum and with the election of Trump is that many people in many countries have actually felt that all the things which I saw as giving me greater opportunities, giving me a greater sense of security, are in fact pathways to insecurity and are seen as threats, whether uh, threats from terrorism, from migration, which can drive down um, uh, wages in certain sectors or put pressure on public services, even if it contributes to, to economic growth in the, in, in, in the main. Um, whether it's about cyber attacks, whether it's about um, uh, uh, jobs going overseas, there are all sorts of different channels where connectivity has a dark side. That is not something which is um, entirely uh, new, but what is, uh, I think, a bit newer and more difficult to digest is firstly that connectivity seems to be actually 
creating a lot of the tensions between different people, giving them reasons to, to fight each other. And I kind of look at how our uh, connected world has created uh, a sense of, uh, of uh, an epidemic of envy as people compare themselves to other players has often ended up segregating our societies into different filter bubbles that have very little contact with each other and has also led to a widespread uh, lack of control and that those things feed into a different kind of politics which is a politics um fueled by identity by envy and by taking back control and pushing back on internationalism but even more dramatic than that is the fact that globalization has given countries a whole series of different channels to uh conflict with each other and you mentioned uh, in your intro some of the things which have happened in, in recent times um, where the links which tie different countries together instead of creating peace and harmony are in fact providing tools for power politics. And in the book, I use this metaphor of uh, a marriage going wrong and say that globalization is a bit like a marriage that goes wrong. So in a marriage, all the things that bind you together during the good times become the ways that you hurt each other when things go wrong. So who gets custody over the kids, who gets to keep the pet dog, who has the, the holiday home. These are ways that that uh, a couple that doesn't get on anymore um, hurts each other and tries to, to have influence over one another. And with globalization, it's not the dog or the, the, the children or the family home that is weaponized, but it is, in fact, all the different points of contact that we have with each other, whether it's Economic links, where we're seeing a, a rise in sanctions, in uh, export restrictions, people bullying each other with access to vaccines and masks and other kinds of things like that. Whether it's about global infrastructure, and we've seen big debates about whether China should be allowed to build 5G networks in different places, whether Huawei could be allowed into our economies, whether it's a question of, to do with migration. Very recently, we've been hearing about how Belarus is is uh, encouraging Afghan refugees to go into Poland and Lithuania to put pressure on the, the governments there. Um, or um, the uh, question of the internet, as you were saying, social media and uh, uh, have, have provided pathways for, for new kinds of uh, misinformation campaigns for attempts to interfere in elections. And finally, even the international institutions have been reinvented rather than them creating greater harmony. Um, there's more and more talk of, of, of lawfare as people use international law as a way of, of hurting one another. And that um, set of, of, of behaviors, I think, is something which is growing in an exponential way and is creating a world which is not at war in a sort of classic sense. So it's not the kind of war which my grandfather got sent to when he was in the trenches in, in World War One, But it's also not really peace because every year, tens of thousands uh, of people uh, are being killed. Millions of people are suffering economically. Hundreds of millions are seeing their, their elections interfered with in different ways. And um, that's why I, I talk about this era as the, the age of unpeace, because it's not war according to conventional terms, but at the same time, there's a huge amount of violence and suffering which has been unleashed through the weaponization of globalization. And, uh, you know, we're just at the beginning of this. And if you look at what happens with, with COVID, what's happening with climate change, um, 
you can see how these great planetary problems are, in, rather than bringing countries together in search of collective solutions, are providing new platforms for countries to hurt each other and to compete for relative advantage. And the consequences of that could be absolutely catastrophic. I would just add something. Uh, another example of what you discussed yesterday was quite shocking that uh, Justin Trudeau in Canada just announced that foreigners will not be allowed to purchase property uh, in Canada for at least the next two years, which is just uh, the perfect example of what you, you discuss uh, in your book, all of these restrictions that are now coming. I mean, I'm in Mexico and I, I know a lot of Mexicans that have escaped uh, to Canada and you know, I'm sure some of them will have been wanting to buy property, but I guess that's off the table uh, for now. And and uh, you're kind of echoing one of the sentiments of my recent guest, uh, Russian academic Artyom Lukin, who discussed how we're entering kind of into an era of closed borders or uh, isolationism. And, and yeah, I think you're right. This uh, integration, this globalization that we, we've had for the past few decades has brought us together, but it's now amplifying uh, our differences in, in, in many different ways, as you discuss in your book, through through the, you know, networks, uh, you know, internet, uh, economic uh, ways we're tied together, and so on. And in your book, you talk about the, the three biggest players, which are the U.S., China, uh, and Europe, the EU. Uh, the, the three have different views, weapons, and philosophies. The shape of our global order will be defined by the battle between these three empires of connectivity. Dramas that are meant to strike once a century seem to afflict us every few minutes. You write, you even say that we're not far off uh, from George Orwell's dystopian vision of a world split between Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about, you know, the, about the big three in the age of unpeace? Certainly. So loads of countries have found ways of, of weaponizing and instrumentalizing connectivity. You mentioned a lot of them, you know, Turkey um, using migration, Iran seizing um, Korean tankers, Russia uh, trolling and using disinformation. But none of those powers can change the whole system. And there are only three countries which have got enough connections, enough money, sorry, three they're not countries because the European Union is not a country. Three political um, uh, organizations which have enough power, connections, and resources to, to try and change the way that the whole system works. And they are the US, China, and the European Union. And what is really striking about them is that all three are going through a revolution in how they think about globalization and how they think about their role within it. But they're going in, in quite different ways. And they're conceptualizing the, the challenges in slightly different ways. They think about power in different ways. They've got different philosophies. So in the US, for example, you have uh, a period of, uh, of, of major rethinking about globalization, epitomized by the slogan, you know, by American. Um, a lot of people thought that Donald Trump was uh, a kind of outlier and that when he left, the US would go back to normal. But what we're seeing under Biden is, is a continuing of this process of rethinking America's role in the global system. And typically, the US has, has been um, uh, one of the big builders of the network world that we're living in, a big champion for globalization. It's where the internet is born. Um, but uh, at the same time, um, the U.S. has always had quite an instrumental approach to, um, to these sorts of connections. And what they tend to focus on is to think about how the networks are structured. So 
there are lots of ties between different nodes in a network, but some ties are more important than others. And you have these hubs where vast amounts of, of traffic goes through, which can be uh, give which can give you superpowers. So in the US, for example, there are two kind of particular hubs which have given America superpowers. One is the dollar. So 96% of, of global um, foreign exchange goes through three banks in um, uh, in New York and uses the dollar. And the US has managed to weaponize its control of the dollar in order to impose its political preferences on others. We saw that with the Iran sanctions, where countries like the European Union were forced to, to abide by policies which went completely against their own policies and even against international law um, because of the, the weaponization of the dollar. Another very powerful example is, is the internet. You know, a huge amount of traffic goes through um, uh, a number of cables and uh, which are based in, in the US. And the NSA was very quick to, to work out what it could do with that and has uh, mined a lot of that data. And um, we, we saw through Snowden's re uh, revelations how much um, the US had used its control of the internet to, to enhance its intelligence over what was going on in, in other places. Um, so in America, there is a kind of uh, focus on these hubs and, a, and, and an attitude of trying to use sort of uh, data mining and gatekeeping, keeping countries in and out of the, the dollar system as a way of, of, uh, of asserting its power. Um, and increasingly, they're also worried that their era of being able to control everything and to set the rules for the whole world is coming to an end. And that's leading them to be a bit less universalist. And rather than going for, for institutions which involve everyone, there's an attempt to try and build a parallel world order with like-minded democratic countries and to have economic networks organized around that because they fear that China is becoming such a powerful center of economic activity that uh, it could end up subverting the rules which the US has, has been trying to advance. In China, you've also got uh, a, a big rethinking going on about globalization. I mean, in some ways, unlike in, in the West, the Chinese have always thought about connections and connectivity as a central part of power. If you look at sort of Confucian philosophy and you go back through all the different regimes over the last few thousands of years, the Chinese have thought a lot about power in terms of these connections. And a lot of Chinese international relations experts talk about how China has a relational model for international relations. So rather than just looking at the players, who, who the different powers are and what the hubs are, they look at the links, the ties that bind all of them together. And in the Chinese system and in the Chinese mentality, so they're less focused on the hubs, but more thinking about how many ties link you to other players and how central are you to these networks. And that comes from this belief of, of, of China as the middle kingdom around which everybody else kind of rotates. And you have this tributary system in Asia where all countries are bound into China. And nowadays, you're seeing China trying to build a new tributary system through the Belt and Road Initiative where 65 countries around the world are being kind of linked into China through digital networks, through roads and pipelines and railways and ports. And um, the idea is that this will allow China to become more and more central and be able to, to, to decide how to handle its relations with other players based on how friendly, friendly they are towards um, China. Um, at the same time, the Chinese are 
very, very nervous about globalization being used to undermine China. They got a big shock when um, Donald Trump put big Chinese companies like ZTE on an entities list, which meant that they couldn't get access to, to key components like uh, chips um, and, and uh, processors, which would not be able to be produced in China. So China's going from a kind of model of export-led growth to uh, a new philosophy of globalization, which Xi Jinping has called dual circulation, where you both look at the internal Chinese economy and you see how you can make China more self-sufficient using its domestic consumption more and trying to work out how you can conquer a lot of the different elements of the economy of the future with different technologies like artificial intelligence, batteries, other areas which are going to be central to the future of China and try and make China as, as self-sufficient as possible in those areas. And at the same time, to think about the second wheel, which is uh, external circulation, China's links with the rest of the world, and to try and reconfigure that so that it's done, um, that the, the economic links are organized in ways which make other countries more dependent on China than it is on them, so that China can actually use globalization to advance its interests. And then the European Union is the sort of third big uh, block. And I think with the European Union, it's focused a bit less on the the hubs and on the ties and more on the individual nodes within the system and what rules they follow. And the EU is obsessed with rules. The European Union itself is a, is a kind of legal construction. To join it, you have to implement 80,000 pages of legislation which govern everything from the composition of soya beans and, the, and the, to lawnmower sound emissions, but also have a lot of quite political ideas within them. And the EU has basically been trying to export its rules to the rest of the world. Every time it enlarges, countries are forced to, to absorb these 80,000 pages, but it also forces other countries to abide by them. A classic example was the, the regulations for privacy on the internet called GDPR, where the European Union forced other people to, to or tried to force other people to, 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 to abide by these standards, even if they were based outside of the, the EU. And I think what you're going to increasingly see is these three great powers of connectivity rubbing up against each other, trying to um, advance their own ideas about how the internet could be organized, but also um, fighting against each other for control of these different networks. And um, it leads to a lot of instability. So it's not quite about globalization going into reverse because the there's so much at stake and people benefit so much from the links within each other, uh, between each other. But at the same time, um, because it's increasingly being weaponized and instrumentalized, it feels, it feels quite risky. And that is creating a lot of, um, of unease and is creating a lot of problems. And we're seeing that in a lot of sectors of the economy as global supply chains um, are being undermined by this kind of uh, political competition. And it's affecting the car industry. It's affecting what you can buy in supermarkets. Um, it's uh, uh, potentially um, something which which could have enormous consequences for ordinary people as well as uh, for grand strategists and policymakers who sit in, in chancelleries around the world. Yeah, you're, you're, so you're talking about China, and, and that was one of my biggest takeaways from your book, which 
I, I kind of I got a lot of insights was your analysis on, on the US-China relationship. You, for example, spoke to a professor on one of your many uh, trips to China who said, quote, when China goes to war with the USA, they hope Europe will at least stay neutral, end quote. You know, this has been a burning question of mine. Is China integrate, integrating with the West or is it truly turning away and becoming a sovereign? You just kind of discussed that dual uh, circulation. Um, and, you know, and then becoming sovereign, uh, you know, turning a bit away, which would perhaps increase the chances of conflict with the U.S. Like, a, you know, people talk about war with the U.S., like this professor in, uh, in the West now, the the, um, the the hawks are talking about this more and more. Uh, you say China hasn't followed a script written by the techno-utopians, that the CCP hasn't been swept aside uh, by the Internet. But there's also a fascinating theory that you discuss in your book where uh, you talk about Peter Thiel's intellectual hero, uh, Rene Girard, and this theory that China and the U.S. are increasingly becoming mimetic doubles of each other as they compete more strenuously to be the world's number one power and mirror each other's strengths in order to advance that goal, they will inevitably become more alike and their mutual antipathy will grow. The distinction between both systems is blurring, making it neither possible uh, in its pure form, a sort of uh, convergence where China absorbs, I guess, some aspects of the Western capitalist uh, uh, or development strategy uh, as we've seen so far. But kind of remains authoritarian and america simply becomes i guess more centralized and authoritarian which i personally as an american fear uh, we're kind of slowly witnessing uh now you know what are your thoughts on uh, on this aspect of china and this this convergence between uh the two so that is one of the the big takeaways from the way that i learned to think about connectivity is that there is this sort of a widespread sense that we're on the verge of a new Cold War, that the thing which splits China from America are their irreconcilable differences. The US is the ultimate embodiment of the free world. China is developing this digital authoritarianism um, and stands for closed societies. And that that ideological fissure between these totally different universes is going to define geopolitics in the future. Um, and what I found actually is that increasingly what seems to be happening is that China and the US are in many ways becoming more similar rather than more different. And as they become more similar, the tensions are going up. So if you look at the kind of long story of the last few decades, you know, 20 years ago, China and America were really different. One was the kind of ultimate uh, advanced uh, economy. The other was a developing country. China was the manufacturer of the world. The US was the kind of consumer of lost resort. Um, the US was the kind of big spender. China was a big saver. And, you know, in, in all sorts of different ways, they mirrored each other and they got on pretty well, actually. Um, so well that people like Neil Ferguson talked about Chimerica, that there was a single economic entity that was being created. Um, and nowadays, if you look at, across those different dimensions, what you see is that China and America have become much more similar in all sorts of different ways. So if you look at the, the, um, the size of the economies, the size of the kind of middle classes in, in the different countries, um, their, the amount of domestic consumption they have, they're becoming more and more similar. They're increasingly competing with each other to uh, be the 
the, the kind of uh, global trend setters in lots of different areas, whether it's uh, driverless cars or AI or other kinds of areas. And uh, they're also increasingly active in in different in, in 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 similar places, whether it's in Latin America or in Asia or um, uh, in other parts of the world. And um, as the competition between the two of them becomes more and more real, and um, the relations uh, get worse and worse, the two countries are increasingly starting to mirror one another in order to be competitive with one another. So China has long been very suspicious of American tech companies and platforms and has all but outlawed the presence of American tech platforms in within China. Um, and um, uh, the US has traditionally been very open to Chinese investment and allowed these Chinese companies to come in. But that's now changed. A whole slew of, of new regulations have come in, which is basically making it very difficult for Chinese companies to, to work within the US. The president himself got involved in, in the future of TikTok and forced them to sell off their, their US operation. Um, companies like uh, Grindr, which was, is a kind of day, a, a gay hookup um, site, was that it was deemed to be against American national security for a Chinese company to own that. So they were forced to, to sell it. Um, and you're seeing a sort of decoupling going on in the in the um, uh, in the technological realm in the U.S., which mirrors in many ways what the Chinese um, had done before. And in other areas, you're seeing China becoming much more um, like America, whether it's uh, you know rethinking its its international footprint, opening uh, naval bases in different parts of the world. Um, uh, so you're seeing a sort of gradual convergence as the two countries look at each other, mirror each other, and, and copy each other. And that when it comes to particularly things like the, the future of technology, you see these sort of strange shadow debates, which are, which are quite different. I'm not saying that China and America are identical. I'm just saying that there is a process of convergence going on, which is leading to greater tension. Um, with, you know, so if you look at the, the Chinese uh, internet and the debates about surveillance, uh, uh, and um, the future of, of China as a, as a digital dictatorship. A lot of the, the debates about ways that data is being misused and being um, used in a pre predatory way have their mirror image in debates about surveillance capitalism um, in, in the US. Um, and as a result, what you're seeing is, is, is a, a kind of muddying of the waters, which is quite uh, complicated. And it's worrying people, a lot of people in, in the US who, who fear that in their quest to remain competitive with China, some of the, the most attractive elements of America's open society might end up being subverted, whether it's because of this move towards a much more mercantilist economic model, a lot more kind of state planning, but also, you know, kicking Chinese researchers out of the country, kicking down on 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 uh, on research networks and things like that. Yeah, I, I'm just curious. That kind of leads into my next question: how how you might feel uh, about that, or or the people um, that you uh, work with, or, or or that you meet. You know, when you talk about the age of Unpeace. We're not talking about conventional war, nuclear war, military conflicts, as, as you said. It all, it's about you know migration and things like this. All these different things being used as weapons. Uh, for me personally, I guess my greatest fear would be 
the misuse of what you, uh, you know, it, if we're talking about the age of unpeace and all of these things that can be used as weapons, for me, the biggest uh, fear is technology, precisely that, you know, cyber attacks, uh, this is cyber pandemic that's been talked about, cyber disruptions, and this sort of uh, digital dictatorship model, uh, you know, social credit system, which you just described in China, uh, coming um to the West, uh, this week it was reported, you know, that Russia is banning uh, VPNs and email services. Actually, my my email service is banned in Russia. My Russian guest that I was uh, trying to get on, uh, that I spoke to last week, he couldn't respond uh, to my email because it was blocked by the Russian government. So I had to use my Gmail to, to speak with him. Uh, and so now we're seeing, uh, and, uh, and we saw as well, the U.S. just took down Iran's press TV uh, domain, but we're starting to see in the U.S. For example, I, I'm an American citizen. I haven't done anything wrong. Um, you know, my Patreon was uh, terminated a few months ago. My Facebook page is restricted. I'm hearing about Americans, innocent Americans, having uh, their bank accounts terminated for their political or, or religious views uh, and being put on no-fly lists. And so it seems like um, that's my biggest fear. What would be, uh, you know, what, what do you think about this? And what would be your uh, biggest fear in the age of unpeace, short of, you know, conventional? war well i think all the things you're talking about are symptoms of this increasingly uncertain world where people are using the, the, the ties that bind us together to to exert exercise political power and to to get ahead themselves and to to hold other people back i think some of the most existential risks that people have talked about some of them are um things which are going to be deliberate so you know there are all sorts of the libraries have been filled with some of the, the, the cyber attacks which could take place so far we're lucky that there haven't been any kind of existential um risks which have been unleashed by by cyber attacks but there are all sorts of horrendous scenarios which could take place where people could take down power grids or interfere with nuclear weapons and kill you know large numbers of people um in, in different places um i think you could also see enormous economic destruction being unleashed through um uh if there is a, a real weaponization of the global trade system or the finance system you could have a lot of uh people uh losing their jobs um uh, potentially um finding access to to food and to other kinds of things uh undermined because our global supply chains are so vulnerable to to, to these kinds of interferences um and um uh there are a whole series of, of things which could happen, you know, with other kinds of infrastructure being taken down, whether it's, you know, 5G networks or um, uh, uh, access to energy or things like that being kind of disrupted. But maybe the most scary thing is is the way that people are instrumentalizing global problems. And one of the things that I was hoping in the 90s is that our politics would uh, recognize the fact that a lot of the biggest challenges that we faced as a as a world were not about uh, fights between different countries, but it was things which which um, affected us all together. Whether it's the climate emergency or more recently COVID, and the hope is that that would lead to cooperative solutions and attempts to deal with these things together. But instead, because of the dynamics that we've been talking about, the way that connectivity seems to make people think more about their own identities and how they can be how they can compete with others rather than 
sort of rising to the challenge and coming together to deal with these things. People seem to be playing games to get ahead themselves and doing other people down. And there is a, a huge danger with the climate emergency that countries could end up um, trying to go for relative advantage rather than coming up with a common solution. Um, the pandemic uh, is also uh, quite scary to, to, to think about how that could develop if large parts of the world don't get access to vaccines and, and find that, that um, they become uh, enormous breeding grounds for new variants, which could end up potentially uh, overwhelming uh, humanity. So I think that that's the sort of third type of, 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 of issues is um, us rather than dealing with existential risks together in a responsible way that we end up uh, squabbling amongst ourselves and uh, finding that uh, that things can get out of hand. And you could have a layering of these different um, things with cyber attacks, coming together with an economic depression, coming together with a kind of climate emergency, with large flows of people being driven from their homes and that also being kind of weaponized. And that really is the sort of nightmare scenario that, that all of these things um, come together in a perfect storm of, of, uh, of, of connectivity conflict. Just a quick thought uh, on your most recent article uh, that you wrote uh, some days ago on Afghanistan. Uh, you've commented that the end of the U.S.-led forever war in Afghanistan will not bring peace because the methods that countries use to attack each other have changed, that the world has entered a new age of uh, perpetual competition among powerful states, a brutal ge geopolitical competition, uh, as you described. Um, and so... Uh, You've kind of, you know, you said that it resembles a loveless uh, marriage. You've, you, you've said that previously. And, you know, we're seeing China, Russia, Iran moving into the void left by the Americans in Kabul. Uh, if we take, you know, Afghanistan as an example in the age of unpeace, you know, what are your thoughts just on, on Afghanistan and you know, what might transpire in the future there? So I think, you know, one thing uh, to be aware of is, is that it is because the Biden team are very aware of this new world, which I've been describing, that they were so desperate to get out of the old one. And Afghanistan, in many ways, was a sort of legacy of a different world order. When 9-11 uh, happened, the US was at the center of the, the world and was the, the kind of avatar of this project of, of building a liberal international order around the US, um, where democracy and liberalism could be spread um, to every corner of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that Biden was so desperate to get out um, and did it in such a brutal way, I think is a recognition that that era is, is over and that in the future, the big challenges which he is going to face are not about dealing with terrorism in the plains of Central Asia, but it's more about the weaponization of globalization and these connectivity conflicts uh, between China and America and other powers that I've been talking about. And one of the reasons that he was so desperate to get out of Afghanistan was so that he could start to make America competitive for this new world. But equally, you can see how the way that Afghanistan um, has developed over the last few weeks and some of the things that come out of it uh, are reflections of this new world as well. So it's, it's quite different to the last time that the Taliban took over Afghanistan, um, uh, you know, in the in the 90s, because 
you know, first of all, they managed to do it without fighting at all. And that, I think, has got a lot to do with this new information environment where they could weaponize information and, and made it uh, uh, very uh, um, uh, easy to, to, to scare the Afghan army into, um, into a sense of, um, uh, it, well, into, it's basically into, 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 um, into acquiescence and remember they didn't put up a fight. So that was very striking difference from, from the last time the, the, um, the Taliban came to power, but also, uh, a lot of the debates now are about the using different types of connectivity, uh, as a way of, of exercising power. So, there have been lots of articles, which I mentioned before, about how President Lukashenko in Belarus is trying to weaponize migration um, out of um, Afghanistan and to, to push back uh, against Europeans. There have been all sorts of discussions about whether the US is going to be able to use its control over the uh, financial system and Afghan, Afghanistan's access to, to, to money as a way of re-establishing some of the control that it lost as a result of withdrawing its troops. Um, there are all these questions about China and how China relates to Afghanistan and how this and Pakistan, which relates to these kind of questions of connectivity. So you're seeing how even in a place like Afghanistan, which is seen in many ways as the last remnant of a kind of old world, um, is operating according to these new principles of, of, of one peace. And there was an article that, that said that the Taliban used WhatsApp. Uh, WhatsApp to make make the Afghan army uh, think that they're kind of like uh, ominous everywhere, which uh, I guess helped helped um, helped them come quickly to power. Uh, just a few more questions. You said that most of the world's population does not live in the U.S., China, or the EU, uh, such as myself for the moment. Uh, you call this the the fourth world. Uh, you know, for me, it seems the Americas seem destined to follow the diktats uh, of the U.S. with some China thrown in, while parts of Africa and Asia will be influenced by China with some. EU and a dash of US thrown in. Uh, just your thoughts uh, on the fourth world, as you call it. So, you know, in some ways, if I'm right that we're moving into these three empires of connectivity, it feels a bit like the sort of echoes of um, of of the Cold War, where you had these two blocks that were kind of competing with each other, and then you had a, a large swathe of countries the second world who were kind of non-aligned, who were squeezed between the, 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 the superpowers and uh, found it quite difficult to, to organise their existence. I think in some ways, um, the fourth world now is in a much better state than the second world uh, during the Cold War because the world is a bit more orderly um, and also because uh, a lot of countries are increasingly going to try and arbitrage these other regimes and use that to, to extract favors and to to um to uh maximize their say over their own affairs um and we'll see how successful they are in doing that in asia uh countries have often tended to bandwagon with china economically but in security terms with the us and that's now uh proving a bit more uncomfortable and both China and America are trying to get them to choose which side they're on. Um, so I think we're going to see a, a quite a uncomfortable period for the fourth world where, where um, different countries are squeezed and where attempts are made by the, the great powers to, to kind of force them to, to choose. But at the same time, um, there are new opportunities for, for, 
for uh, middle ranking powers, which we've seen, um, uh, you know, if you look at Turkish foreign policy, at the foreign policy of the UAE, of Saudi Arabia, of Iran, um, of Russia, uh, as the US recalibrates its position in many parts of the world and, and China kind of gets ready for its competition with the US, there is a vacuum which can be filled and which which creates, I think, quite a lot of room for activist middle powers. Um, so I, th- I suspect there'll be, uh, in this age of our peace, there'll be uh, quite a lot of messiness with um, maybe a more, less of a kind of monogamous attachment to particular sectors and more of a sort of uh, era of free love where um, different countries uh, are trying to build relationships with one another. And and, um, certainly until the kaleidoscope settles down, uh, it would be quite a complicated world where many countries try and maintain lots of different relationships with each other and see what space they can carve out for themselves uh, in this uh, world where connectivity is being weaponized. And before I guess uh, getting a final uh, thought from you, uh, final say, I thought listeners might be uh, interested in the ECFR. Uh, I think it was uh, a year or two ago, I interviewed former director of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, Chatham House, uh, Victor Bulmer Thomas. Um, my understanding is that the Royal Institute was created in the early 20th century, followed by its American cousin, um, the CFR. And I think you co-founded the ECFR in 2007. Um, could you just tell us uh, anything about the, the history of the ES? East, the European Council on Foreign Relations, and the work uh, that you do uh, today. With great pleasure. So, yeah, we were set up in the 21st century rather than in the 20th century. And therefore, um, uh, what we tried to do is to, to focus on a lot of the big challenges of our era. Um, so we, we do a lot of work on um, trying to understand uh, how different people think in different parts of the world. So we have a lot of active programs on China and Asia, on wider Europe, which looks at Russia and Turkey and the post-Soviet space. We have a big program on the Middle East um, uh, and a program on Africa. But the big difference between the European Council on Foreign Relations and some of these other councils on foreign relations you talk about is that we're a pan-European organisation and part of the hope is to try and get Europeans to look at the world together in a more um, outward looking way. And therefore, um, part of our goal, as well as understanding the world outside, is to get Europeans to engage with one each other across different capitals. So we have offices in Berlin, Paris, Rome, Madrid, Warsaw, um, Sofia, London. And we have our team of researchers who is based around these different offices. We also have a council with about 300 leading um, uh, politicians, statesmen, intellectuals, um, powerful women from uh, from the world of business and, uh, and diplomacy who meet once a year as a group, but who also uh, form part of this embryonic strategic community. And we were slightly inspired by the, the model of the Council on Foreign Relations in the 20th century that helped the US go from being an introverted giant to a global superpower. And our hope is that by getting different people from around Europe to talk to each other and to share their ideas about the world, we can start getting um, Europeans to play a more 
constructive role on the world stage and to use some of the assets that they have with this huge market, with these large levels of wealth and spending on defense and on diplomacy to actually uh, play a more constructive role on on global problems and to to engage in a more uh, effective way with other powers. Sorry about that, Paul. Yeah, don't, don't worry. I've got I've got an orchestra of dogs in my neighborhood. Luckily, they're quiet right now. Uh, any any final thought to, to leave us with then? Um, well, I think the main thing is um, we just went through the the very top headline. So, if you're interested in finding out more by the age of unpeace, why how connectivity causes conflict, which you can get from Amazon and all good bookshops around the world, I hope. Yeah, I'll include the links below and a lot of interesting people have left reviews. Uh, I, I've seen Martin Jacques and Niall, Niall Ferguson uh, and others. So you're on Twitter at Mark H. Leonard. The website is ecfr.eu. Uh, apart from the book, is there any other website or project uh, you'd like uh, us to know about? I think you've you mentioned uh, everything, uh, but uh, you also mentioned my podcast, which is Mark Leonard's World in 30 Minutes. Um, if you've enjoyed this conversation, um, you might want to check that out. Uh, we'd love to, to, to hear from you. And um, I think uh, it might be a good uh, compliment to your existing uh, podcast, which you're listening on if you, if you are interested in international affairs. All right. The Age of Unpeace. Uh, I think we'll be in for quite a ride, uh, as you detail uh, in the book. So check out the book, uh, everyone, and follow Mark's work. Uh, thank you, Mr. Leonard, for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and Leave a donation, if possible, via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.